some point, you're gonna have to stop fucking around, right? And be who you are. And that's a very scary moment in time because when you go with other people's truths, whatever that is, right? In your case, I'm harmless and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna assert my real thing. I'm just gonna go with the flow and be all cutesy. Um, you're essentially hiding behind, uh, you know, like a persona that, in, that that's not yours. And of course, uh, he was talking about teachers, right? Where you take somebody else's truth and then you're safe because you're not responsible, right? Because it's not yours, really. And, uh, you know, how could all the other people be wrong who believe the same thing? Versus when you go, well, this is who I am, you do run a fairly high risk that somebody isn't okay with that. Um, And that brings us back to a little bit of the boundary setting um in one end right but also you have to have a bit of a robustness around what that means right meaning it the benefit of the puppy you know the the the, the puppy pu- puppy asana you know <laughs> is that um you're going to be a member of the pack Right? That's what that is all about in dogs, right? In dogs, dogs have to establish a an order so that everybody in the pack knows where everybody stands and then harmonious life can ensue. And believe me, if that's not the case, you constantly have to deal with snarling and you know and and <laughs> right? we have a bit of a dog pack situation with a dog we found on the road who is refusing to do the thing she should do. She's the lowest on the on the, on the totem pole, but she doesn't want to be. So it's a constant snarling and growling and exploding, and it's rather unpleasant <coughs> for everyone, including the alpha who is extremely stressed about because she's half the size of the, the omega. And, you know, and, and it's very it's stressful. So you're saving yourself a lot of stress and um, existential stress, by slotting in, right? So the problem with that, and this is particularly true amongst women, because women are like chickens when it comes to pecking order, right? Meaning women immediately walk in a, within a room, um, slot in somewhere, right? And, and based on that, they regard other women higher or lower than them. They cluster with certain people and what where where a real problem is created often you've seen this um, you know in various places is when that's not uh, okay to happen right when there is some kind of a belief that everybody's equal which we're not right and that's not to say somebody's lesser than the other but within a group context there's leaders and there's followers and within the followers different people have different gifts and talents so to make a a group of gifted talented individuals homogenized is to destroy everything that's good about a group right Um, it's like milk soup instead of a spicy flavorful stew and so when you um when you pretend to be cardamom when you're really pepper, you essentially mess up the stew. Yeah. 
right? Because you're thrown in there as cardamom and then suddenly your pepper flavor comes online and it's way too much. And, and you know, it's like, oh, what happened? Why is pepper in here, right? <laughs> well, well, if you come in as pepper, you can be used as pepper in the right configuration within the stew. And that's the growing up part is that you know your spice and you add it, uh, you know, you, you are... Your internal and your external are matched up so that what people see is what people get. Yes. Right. And that's a process. Yeah. And it goes against your, the natural impulse of just being safe yes. and liked. So that, that's, a, that is, that's the process is, you know, where do you begin and somebody else ends? And how do you bring your unique flavor to the stew so it can be used optimally? Well, I would say in general, and this is my general philosophy on these things, even when I work with people one-on-one -on -one and, and stuff like that, is um, you can pretty much trust, like Mark discovered in his dreams, right? uh, you can pretty much trust that your subconscious mind and your body will churn up whatever needs to be dealt with. And you don't actually need to fuck with that. Uh, this is not a popular... Uh, idea amongst people who make a living having people come back for sessions endlessly. Mm -hmm. But um, if you just know that the sensations and, uh, you know, emanations of your subconscious mind and body uh, are not, they're not one-to-one, -one, right? It's not as simple as, oh, you must have been buried alive in a past life, right? Or whatever people could say. Or, oh, maybe you were molested when you were a baby and you didn't know. And now you have the feeling of many hands on you or whatever. Or there were ghosts in the forest uh, touching you and pulling you back in. Whatever people say, you know, like crazy shit. Founded or unfounded. All of which could be true. All of which could be total bullshit. Um, you don't need to know your body has the ability and the medicine, so to speak, to release and to examine in ways that, you know, does what it does. So, uh, and it's funny that you say psychedelic trip because, of course, one of the reasons people do things like ayahuasca and mushrooms, I'm talking about the medicinal use of psychedelics, right, or, or ritual use of psychedelics, not the... Um, what do they call it, recreational use. In the, in the ritual use of psychedelics, what you're banking on is essentially that the drug uh, pulls you far enough out of your conceptual mind that your brain, you know, that the, the intellect can't fuck with the body's or the psyche's experience. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, nonlinear is like that. It produces the, the same kind of chemicals that certain uh, psychedelics produce naturally if you do it long enough particularly or in the right set of circumstances and that's true for nature too you were reporting that the hills were like rippling like the water right I mean that's like that's a prime acid trip kind of a feature or a mushroom trip feature that you had naturally well because all of these things are in the body right certain psychedelics just bring that forth in a much more exaggerated way so for the most part you wouldn't examine whatever the hell uh, washes through you on a mushroom trip afterwards either other than the insight or the outcome 
And it's the same in these kind of explorations. If there is more, guess what? It's going to show back up. If there isn't, well, then moving on to the next iteration of that. Well, and so um, it's, you know, sometimes interesting uh, to keep a bit of a journal on your experiences. So way later you can look back and go, oh, you know, things make sense often much, much later on. But I would just move right along. Yeah. Because there's other things at play too, right? Like the moon phases, what you ate, the particular nature you were in, the people you were with, the tree's state of uh, hydration, whatever, right? There's like all kinds of subtle influences on your experience that have really nothing to do with your experience, but to do with the fact that you are an organism amongst organisms. No. The key is always relaxation, mm. right? The key is always relaxation. When in doubt and you don't know what to do, relax, right? And that relaxing could be a physical relaxing, an emotional relaxing, a mental relaxing. And this is particularly true when you want to run or subvert. You just don't do anything. You know, just hang out. Just hang out there. And in the hanging out there, you're not retreating, but you're also not pushing forward before you're ready. Mm. Right? And um, that's not an easy place for most people because most people cope by just pushing a bit harder mm. or running, cutting bait and running the other way. Right? Yeah. So it's not uh, a shortcoming and it's not that you don't have those pieces. Mm. It's just that you don't have capacity there because you haven't exercised it, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you, you do kundalini yoga every day, I assume, right? And that gives you a certain kind of capacity. Mm -hmm. If I take you to an ashtanga power flow class in, in a hot yoga place or some, you know, crazy combo, all your kundalini yoga training wouldn't help you. Mm -hmm. Right, but maybe the um, sticking with it would, mm. right? Or you do the power flow ashtanga, whatever. You're really strong. You can do like that crazy hot asana. Would take you to the gym and put you down on a hundred weight, hundred pound weight on the bench press. Well, pretty good chance that thing will come straight down on your chest, mm. right? Even though you're athletic in other mm. domains because it takes different groups of muscles, and that's true for physical muscles, emotional muscles, psychic muscles, mental muscles, to be worked. And so it's not a shortcoming. It's certainly not that you don't have the dark side. Everybody has a dark side. You know, some people are, are um, more vanilla than chocolate as a disposition, but we all have areas. It's just you don't have a lot of muscle around that. And so in the beginning, when you do uh, physical practices like we're doing, um, you will often come up against some really strong shortcomings. And instead of going, oh, I'm just fucked up or I'm not as good as the other girls at this or whatever, you go, oh, that's an area where I haven't worked out. 
now let me work out that area. And then when you see it from that place, which is a place of actually developing more um, muscle, more skill, more understanding versus from the place of scarcity, you know, oh shit, I'm wrong, I'm not good enough, I can't do it like other people, then you can get quite good at it quite quickly because really it's not much different than, you know, lifting weight. Very few people have like horrible psychological issues about uh, going from a one pound weight to a five pound weight to a 10 pound weight when they first start training, right? Uh, Barely anybody goes, I can't do 50 pounds, I'm a loser. You know, like, you know, you have to work up to it. And the same is true for these things. So you're working up to it, right? First step is you do it. Second step is you don't pop out when you do it. Third step is you relax. Fourth step is you grow a little bit of capacity. And this goes very quickly, as people here will be able to attest for you, is that things that used to be a real stretch in a fairly short period of time become totally like, oh, you know, have you ever had that, that, that thing where nature is so gorgeous you can take it? Right? Like it's like it's just like you can barely look at it because it's just it, it too good, right? Uh, like a good sunset or something can do that to you. Right? Then that can happen in, in sexual pleasure and other places where you just don't have the capacity. So you can't really look there because it's gonna fry your circuits. And so often when we ha- are afraid of the thing we love, it's just you know, it's going to fry our circuits if there's too much of it. And so once again, you start slowly, 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 you relax in between, you relax in between. And like Steve says, a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, getting used to things. If you've never lived in the countryside, it is a different thing. You know, it's a very different thing. It's gorgeous, but it's also, yeah, that too. Dirtier. Dirtier. Yeah, and there's no lights, and there's you have to drive a long time to get to a store, and at night, uh, you know, whatever. In my case, the coyotes are howling and things like that. So, um, yeah, but when you've never heard coyotes howl next to your, you know, your window, it's like ah shit. On the on the first night I spent alone in my now you know no longer existing house. Um, I came back from L.A. from my office. I still had an office in L.A. And it was the first night I was there all by myself. And um, I came home and it, the, the boxes weren't unpacked yet. I just moved there out of the city. West Hollywood is about as city as you can get in, in Los Angeles. And my little dog pack, which was not as many dogs as I have now. Um, th- three? Three. Uh, three or four, who knows, um, are all staring at the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> right? The room is empty like this. In the middle of the room, there's a vac- the vacuum cleaner. And all the dogs, however many there were, oh, no, it was three dogs and the cat are like staring at the vacuum cleaner. And I'm tired and I've driven two hours and I'm in nature and there's no light and there's no neighbors. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? And I lift the vacuum cleaner and under the vacuum cleaner is a snake this size, right? So that's nature for you. And, um, you know, (laughs) I had no capacity for 
uh, snakes in my living room in the countryside at 11 o'clock at night where it's dark and cold and I haven't lived yet, right? Nowadays, that wouldn't even, right? I mean, that, that would be like, well, okay, well, well what are we going to do about that? But back then, that was like, you know, it took everything I had to peel myself off the ceiling and take appropriate action. <laughs> it's a whole other story that I'm not going to get into. I didn't. It's a. It's a, okay. Well, whatever. So, <laughs> it's late at night. I'm totally tired. I don't know what the fuck to do. I um, I figured I I wasn't gonna deal with it till the morning. So I called the dogs out and I closed the door. And then I realized that in between the two rooms, the room which was the office and the room that was the living room, there was a grate from a heater. So. I don't know, you know, it's really stupid when you don't, you know, like I was a city girl essentially at that point. Um, I stuffed some towels in that grate and figured, okay, I'll deal with this in the morning. Well, I went to bed, I fell asleep, and the next thing I hear is that kind of a sound that snakes make. And I wake up and turn out the light, the snakes at the bottom of the bed, like off the bed, but above, and all the dogs and the snakes rearing up. And I don't know, is it poisonous or not poisonous? It wasn't poisonous, but you know, it's pretending to be poisonous. And uh, at that point I had to call the neighbor who came with a shotgun. Um, and, uh, and then it turned out it wasn't a poisonous snake and he just opened the door and the snake went outside. Which is <laughs> Something that didn't occur to me <laughs> up to that point because I had zero snake capacity. Zero. I did know how to call an, an, a complete stranger for help, though, at one in the morning. Yes. Right? So, and I never forget, right? The dude was in his pajamas with his uh, rain, with his wellies on, coming down in the dark with his flashlight <laughs> through the back fence with a loaded shotgun, right? That's that, that's where I moved to, and so you know, that's how it goes. You just you just inch your way past the fear of the unknown towards the thing that you desire and and. Uh, want and this is also true in relationship right lots of women want sp specific kind of relationships but they have no capacity to actually have them and hence lies the problem because you want if you want a certain man a uh, certain kind of man and we all know what kind of man that is he has humor great body he's adventurous right you know you you, you ask any woman there's like a top 10 very few people have what it takes to actually be with a guy like that right and so you want that thing but mm, when you really get it you don't you, it's like nature you're like ah oh, fuck it's a bit too much right and so it's good to identify those things and relax into them Yeah, I think nonlinear can pretty much do anything you want it to do in the sense that you are taking the uh, distraction of your belief systems out of the out of the way of the native intelligence. And the native intelligence could be the native intelligence of your body, your psyche, your spirit, uh, however you want to say it. Right? Different people have different philosophies uh, and different belief systems. Um, I think. Mm. The 
the taking out the middleman of your rational mind is extremely powerful. What you want to use it for, that's up to you at that point. But I certainly have um, worked in the in the realms of the psychic myself a lot with nonlinear. So I definitely would say it's possible if you know if that's something you need to work with. Yeah. Once again, you know, ideally at some point you learn how to detect it so quickly that it's not so deep or that you can deflect it before it happens, right? Which is all things that one can learn, particularly in the shamanic domain. There's a lot of uh, energy and, and, and time spent. Uh, didn't you just do that in one of your retreats? The reversing of the extractions and the reversing of curses and stuff like that. Then in all kinds of traditions they do that. And the, the, um, the mechanism is always one of working through the subtle body and outside of your rational mind. So, well, it's a matter of experimentation. Well, the reason I'm looking at Steve is... Um, the answer to that question is always daily practice, mm. right? And uh, since Steve is the wizard of daily practice, I was looking at him, but it really is finding something that you do every day without fail that reminds you of that. And it can be as little as a minute or as much as several hours, right? Nobody has several hours on a daily basis unless you have really nothing to do uh, in a retreat situation or so, but, but um, finding something that every day when you do it, and it should be the same thing every day, exactly the same thing every day, so that every day when you do it, you can measure your capacity and your state uh, against the thing that you do every day. So another way of saying that is when the practice stays the same, you can begin to observe the things that are variable. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So let's say if I um, uh, dance for a song every morning, right? That's the simplest way of doing it. Or do moving what you're feeling for a song every morning. So then what happens is when you step up onto, the, onto your mat with the same exercise, the, the thing that's variable is your mood, your energy level, your um, attitude, uh, the energy of your body, right? And then you can, you can see how your body reacts based on other factors in your life. And then you can um, adjust those factors so that the thing that you want to grow capacity in can be done. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because I remember you were saying you, you have like an all or nothing thing, right? You have a lot of energy or you have very little energy. And so um, if you do the same thing every day, you can measure your energy level vis-a-vis -vis that activity. And then you can go, whoa, I could barely move today. I mean, I could barely lift my arms. I was so tired. What did I do yesterday? What did I eat yesterday? What supplements did I take yesterday? Or, you know, and so on. Did I have breakfast? Did I have coffee or not? Um, was I upset, uh, overworked? Did I meditate, right? So you can start to triangulate optimal situations for that which you want to call forth. 
or just create a ritual that reminds you of that. I just used moving what you're feeling as an example. You could do a tea ritual every morning and use that as the yardstick to that connection with that. Or, uh, you know, commune with a tree every morning or whatever. But yeah, you need to look and find the thing that becomes the anchor into that world and then do that every day without fail, mm -hmm. right? So regardless of what happens, right, you, you find the anchor, you put your stake in the ground, and then you tether yourself to that stake. And then that's the thing that allows for the widening of the capacity. So what that is, I can tell you, but you will be able to tell. Yeah. Do you want to add to that? Maybe one thing. Yeah. yeah. There's also a difference, and I don't know if this speaks to your practice or not, because I don't know your practice between uh, a sort of a practice that aims to achieve something in terms of a state and a practice that um, has a more open uh, structure in a way. So for instance, the, you can do certain kind of meditations, for instance, that calm you down and mellow you out and center you, prepare you for some, something else. So you're kind of, it's like a, you're aiming to get to a certain in a certain direction, regulating, whatever. That, that's all, those are very good. Yeah. And then there's other kind of practices where, meditations for example, where you work with whatever's there. So you may end the meditation less focused and together than you started it. And that's within the remit of the technique or the approach. It's not aiming to center you or get you calm or get you prepared or get you in, your head in the game. It's not that kind of, it's not the job of that particular technique is to work with whatever's there. So the moving what you're feeling practice, for instance, is one of the second kind, because you move whatever you're feeling. And there's no sense that you'll end up any better off than you were when you started mm -hmm. on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Whereas, say, a, a yin or calming yoga practice is not maybe in your case, because I don't know what your you know, perspective is. Maybe you're not, maybe this doesn't apply, a general point. Um, the job is to, you know, calm down, relax, integrate, center, you know, bring you back. It's like a series of triggers to get you into a certain operational state. It's just a different, it's an entirely different beast, self-improvement versus self-inquiry. It's possible to do, most yoga is self-improvement, <coughs> asana practice, you know, getting in better shape, calm, getting more calm, etc. de-stressing, and that's very good. But there's also a way of practicing where, you, um, you're more open, essentially, to any, what, any uh, the other energies or other moods or tastes of experience. And it can be quite deconstructive, actually, at times, rather than constructive. It doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't optimize you or put you on that sort of next level, necessarily. Um, it doesn't have that kind of an orientation. It's just a different beast. So when someone says, for instance, I practice meditation every day, let's say, right? That could mean anything, couldn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, you could be sitting there like doing what you were doing in your psychiatry, you know, <laughs> hyperventilating for an endorphin high. Mm -hmm. You know, that could be your meditation. Or uh, it could be, you know, focusing on the breath. Like I did all summer, I was doing focusing on the breath meditation. And I was trying to get concentrated, basically, into a concentrated state. I was aiming for it, right? But then there's other ones like we did last night. You're sitting there and working with whatever comes up. So many different kinds, and they all have their uses, but they're not the same thing. You know, 
So that's just a general point about practice. Like, what are you? What is the philosophy or the orientation of the practice you're doing? Because of course, a centering practice rejects the non-centered stuff. Yeah, that's, that's by its very definition. You know, that's the whole point of it, and it, so it should. You know, so it should. That's that's what it's for. And it's not wrong in that. It's just what it is. You don't use a hammer to screw in the light bulb or whatever, do you? But it doesn't mean the hammer's wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so yeah, that's something. So maybe uh, maybe some you portion or part of your practice for chaos and unpredictability and whatever is there, and then maybe follow it up with the preparing yourself for the day because you do you know need to be prepared for your day. You know, you can't just say, "Oh, I was having an ego death." You know, sorry, I was late for the <laughs> sorry, I was late for the meeting. You know, not like you you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> the thing about bringing sparkly Susie home is having some, um, and also this, this takes time, right? Is having some finesse around her, right? Meaning sometimes you'll unpack her, sometimes you won't. And um, we do this in the women's groups, right? The dialing up and dialing down. It's a little bit like that. You develop a part of you that's a bit more, um, outgoing and sparkly and participatory. And then uh, in a group like this, you can kind of play with that because it's meant to do that. So even if you go a little bit over the top or it's a bit off, nothing horrible is going to happen. Of course, when you go home and there's a family construct, which is essentially a finely oiled machine of cogs and wheels that turn, when you do that, there's a pretty good chance that you throw a spanner in the works, so to speak, right? And so when you do that, um, well, first of all, you have to see if you want to do that. And when you do that, you have to um, have the psychological and, and um, I don't know, somatic uh, wherewithal um, or preparation to deal with the fallout, because there is a fallout. It doesn't necessarily have to be a negative fallout, but when one, when one uh, part of the engine changes, all other parts of the engine have to change. Right? And um, it depends then also on the people you're around. Are they willing to um, also change? Because often it takes one person to be the catalyst for everyone to grow into their next iteration. And so if you see yourself more as the fire starter or the catalyst and not the spanner in the works, um, you can go from the rebel into the um, change maker, right? The change agent. And you realize that if you um, dial that up slow enough that they don't know that the water is getting hotter, so to speak, right? Uh, it might just be that everybody gets a bit more permission to also do other things. Because there's a fairly high chance that they are who they are because they have never had another chance within the family construct. And so there is an aspect of liberation that you can engage in, right, as a means of giving a gift to the entire family line, including your husband and you know, your, your cousins or whomever, sisters, brothers. 
And that's a, that's a very beautiful thing. And when you see it from that point, you don't have to go, oh, fuck it, this is my new truth. I'm going to just, you know. So, but you go in and go, huh? let's see if I can kind of change the system from the inside out gradually. And so you just bring a teeny tiny little bit of the sparkle and you see what happens. And you don't hit people over the head with the sparkle and force them to adjust quickly. But you understand that your expression of who you are changes everything around you anyway. And that's how, interestingly enough, that that leads into your second question. You can't be high performance consistently and healthily unless the high performance is who you are. Mm. So it can't be your truth and then high performance reliably and sustainably. You can pull it off and you can pull the wool over your own eyes and somebody else's eyes for a couple of years. Uh, But when you look at real high performance law, we're looking at people who for 15, 20, 30, in cases of, let's say, the Rolling Stones, what's they're in the mid-70s. Well, how does Mick Jagger, right, right after, uh, uh, I don't know him personally, just as a discla- disclaimer here, but I mean, he just had open heart surgery. And did you see him perform? It was like, I mean, incredible, right? And so how do you do that? Your life, blood, guts, and heart are that. And there's, no, there's nothing outside of that. And so in real high performance uh, uh, situations, like some of the people we work with, these people are not different behind closed doors. Right? They don't wake up one way and then they go out and, you know, do they amplify it? Yes. Do they moderate it based on the circumstances? Absolutely. But if you catch any of the people that I would consider high performance at home, they're exactly the same way at home on their own dinner table in their, in their essence of the thing as they are out uh, you know, on, in a stadium or on a movie screen or in a boardroom. And that's the mark of the high performer is that the internal landscape and the external ex- expression are aligned and there is a clear, strong, open channel. And the the high performance part is the channel that allows the truth or the heart or however you want to say it to be uh, flown outwards. As far as Kali goes, I think Kali is the most misunderstood of all the uh, archetypes in Tantra workshops because in most Tantra workshops, Kali is a convenient excuse to spew your toxic shit all over other people. Uh, And it's not, right? Um, There's nothing angry about Kali. And there's nothing toxically expressing, screaming or screaming at guys or whatever people do in those workshops. Um, The understanding of one's death, right, or destruction or the internal thing. And one of the things that's very interesting, if you've never seen it, you should definitely go see it. Um, if you've ever seen a body being cut open or a dead body or an alive body, but if you've ever seen a human being cut open dead or alive, it is a stinking mess, right? 
like the stench of the inside of a human body is something to behold, even in a live human body, right, doing a surgery or so. We're, you know, kind of a sack of some pretty pussy, uh, bloody, bile uh, lymphy kind of stuff, shitty, you know, stuff. And that particular understanding of decay, right, that where we come from, where we're going, that is all Earth exploration, of course. And there's lots of practices being done in that particular domain uh, where you really come to terms with that aspect. And, of course, in some of the traditions, like the Agori traditions, um, you really, really engage with this very heavily with death and decay and you know, meditating in graveyards and all kinds of stuff, so that that aspect comes into awareness. And when that part comes into awareness, uh, it's, you're never going to be okay with the destruction of the earth. You know, you can maybe numb yourself or start thinking all the nice new agey thoughts about how everything is exactly how it should be in the big scheme and blah, 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 and how we are going to have a paradigm shift any moment now, right? Uh, you know, and if we just all meditate at the same time in the same, in the same vibration, then, you know, the Earth's pole will shift and we'll be in nirvana or something like that. Well, if it works, great. But, you know, if it doesn't work, you're still stuck with the fact that shit is going to go get way worse. Like, way worse. We all will probably experience a moment where we're going to think at these shitty little beds in this yes. shitty little house and go, those were the good days. Mm -hmm. Right? Wow, there was warm water, food was being made, uh, we were healthy, there were sheep out there, you know, and so on and so on. That, that's fairly certain to happen right? um, in our lifetime. So I don't think you can um, hold on against that at all, right? And, and the, the cruelty of humans to other humans and animals and... Everything. I don't think there's anything you can do about that other than within that find an expression that um, doesn't contribute that as much as you can. You do anyway. Anything you wear has caused suffering to other people or animals. Anything you eat has caused suffering to other animals or plants and people. And the, the food that we are eating here went through so many different... Um, destructive process, right? The, the, the car who drove it to where and the person who harvested the cotton that you're wearing who wasn't paid well and was exposed to pesticide which dripped into the environment which did this, you know. So this is, uh, Steve sometimes talks about this in the teacher trainings, Indra's net, right? The, the net of causation. Um, you can't escape the, the bloody footprint that, that you create. I mean, even just the way you walked into that grass, you killed a whole bunch of stuff, right? A whole, there were like whole tiny little galaxies that, yeah, so we all are, right? There's, there were many tiny little galaxies of uh, whatever microbe universes that, that died when you took a nice earthing step. And that's Kali. That's Kali, knowing there's nothing you can do that doesn't cause 
destruction somewhere else. And out of this destruction, something else will be birthed. Right? That earthworm that you crushed without knowing is going to you know, uh, feed the grass that then feeds the sheep, which then has uh, a baby, which then is a lamb shank, you know, which feeds a, a person who then goes out and does something great in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a really, if you go down that rabbit hole, you can go mad. And people have, right? So some people feel it all the way through and they go either mad or become saints. And other people just focus on one specific thing that they can actually do something with. Whatever that is. And it doesn't necessarily have to serve all of humanity. But if you're just a decent human being, you've made life a better you know, experience for the people who you know. And the more sensitive you are to the destruction you cause... Uh, consciously and unconsciously, the more you become human, uh, you know, a part of the of the universal human experience, you know? and the more you become a cog in a much much bigger wheel, where you become aware that everything you do has an impact on everything else that's happening. That book Martin Prechtel wrote, which is called. Uh, um, uh, it is called of grief and praise, but it has a first. There's a first part of it, yeah. I never got through it all the way because you know, life and stuff like that. But the thing that really struck me about that book, when I read it, was in, in general about the man himself, who is you know. There's only it has one talk on YouTube, uh, and I read a few of his books. Is a kind of a surrendered acceptance of like like the the way he feels when you when you hear him and see him and read him is that there is um there's not a lot of holding on to uh, a structure of how it should be and one of the big gifts of grief is that to me personally is that you 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 don't have an option really you know, it's a little bit like a drug experience. You don't have an option. You can't argue with reality. When something gets destroyed or dies and you lose it forever, um, like in a fire or when, when somebody dies who shouldn't have died yet, right, bless you, um, you can't argue with it and you can't rationalize your way out of it if you are with it, right? You can if you want to delude yourself endlessly. But still, the stark reality is it's gone and it's not coming back. And you can't recover it. And it's never going to be like this again. And in that stark realization, um, you have two options. You can, well, you have three options. You can shut down completely, internalize it, and just pretend it ain't so. right? And that will probably kill you in short or long-term ways and in physical or emotional or psychic ways, right? Um, you can um, go into coping where you use your well-trodden paths of keeping everything together um, and not allow yourself to feel too much but also not too little. Or you can open 
completely into the experience because it's the only way that you're not going to die, right? And that was my experience both in when James died. I had it a few times before, but not as I wasn't as aware of it. And in the house was that my only option was to allow for the experience to be um, complete and for the grief to be and the abject terror and the uh, and you know all the things that came with it to be so much there and uh, and open myself into it so much that it was ultimately so painful that I thought I was going to pass out and at the same time and and a few times almost did and at the same time utterly ecstatic right I mean utterly ecstatic because at, at that particular moment there's no more there's no dividing line between kind of madness and ecstasy and and the 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 total breakdown of your ability to hold it together and so that space is an is an interesting space to live in simply because um it requires once again capacity right uh meaning it requires your nervous system being able to hold that mm-hmm. and that is not an easy place to be in right? particularly when you have to function so when you say you want that the way into that is to allow yourself to feel it as fully as you can allow yourself to feel it for as long as you can feel it right and that is when you are in a disaster like the, the house fire or in a situation with James that is your only option because if you do anything else you can no longer function no because the 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 need to to there's if you use the energy you have to manage the thing that you don't want to feel there's no more energy to do the thing that needs to be done and that is why in actual disasters you see what people are really made of um you know who is actually capable of just going fuck it right here we are let's deal right and people who just lose their shit and and become you know incapacitated and so the 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 line that brought me to Martin his name is Martin Prechtel uh in the first place was an excerpt from the book where he describes how he was trained by a shaman and he he's uh, recalling the story of having um boarded a bus to go somewhere in Guatemala and uh this homeless totally crazy looking guy who was collecting sweeping the sidewalk and picking up the trash that he could then i guess sell um taking his suitcase and running off with it and so he couldn't board his bus because the guy had his suitcase and so he runs after the guy and the guy then eventually throws the suitcase into the into the gutter and laughs and runs off and now he's he can't the bus is gone so he has to go on the later bus which is much slower and by the time they come you know they they go up those super steep mountains the it turns out that the previous bus had gone off the side of the road as that happens there and there was like flaming inferno and the woman next to him recognized the relative in the rubble of that bus and he describes her her grieving her immediate reaction to that situation and he says something like she dropped onto her hands and knees as is and and screamed 
and, and cried at the earth as is appropriate for the situation. And, you know, it blows your mind the way he phrases it. And, and that, that, I saw that a few years before the fire. That stuck with me, and that's what made me pick up that book, download it actually on Kindle, as I was waiting for the plane to go back to L.A., was that quote where um, he talked about the appropriateness of big grief. Yeah. I mean, just enormous grief. And so that's, that's my, if, if you want my secret, that's my secret, is enormous grief. No. Ongoing enormous grief. That doesn't mean I'm not functioning, but it's ongoing enormous grief.